John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 14. This is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the, the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light that which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the great things about Christmas, or at least one of the great things that I think is great about Christmas, is that we all get to break out our Latin. Uh, be it straight or small, uh, we get to pretend, at least for a while, that we are experts in an ancient and somewhat dead language. We sing glory to God, Gloria, we sing in excelsis Deo, uh, we understand the words adestis, adeste fidelis, uh, we hear the tunes of Divinia Mysterium or Magna Mysterium, depending on which brand of Mysterium you prefer. Uh, of course, my favorite minuscule of Latin is from Anselm of Canterbury and the book Cur Deus Homo, uh, not only because it contains the word cur, which always makes me smile a bit when I think it's not as not referred to a dog, but the Latin word why, uh, but this book and was written about the Incarnation, and it brings out, I think, unfortunately, some of my worst sarcastic and uh, cynical uh, aspects of my personality, because a book written between, as a dialogue between the author and his protagonist, who he is pleased to call Bozo, just seems to me all sorts of right. Uh, the book discusses the necessity of the Incarnation for the sacrifice of Christ to bring reconciliation between God and man. And that idea appears in the translation of the very title, Cur Deus Homo, Why God-Man, or Why the God-Man. And though we may question some of Anselm's uh, purpose and his philosophy undergirding uh, this book, being steeped in feudalism, as if God is a feudal lord who is rightly angry at his vassals, uh, he truly understands the importance of Christ being able to offer a sacrifice of infinite worth, not as we would understand it to please a feudal Lord, but something more Pauline, something of an, a sacrifice of infinite worth to deal forensically with our crime against God, that our sin that rightly deserves his wrath and curse. We face the temptation to lose sight of this precious truth during our celebration of the Incarnation, but truly the Incarnation is marvelous, not just because a baby is born, 
a baby that we give certain, uh, certain characteristics to, but that God became man in order to offer a sacrifice to save us. Without the pageantry and pathos of the season, we are apt to consider the humanity of the Incarnation and often uh, lose sight of the divinity. And I consider it a right to be reminded of this truth regarding the baby born on Bethlehem because it is indeed the burden of Scripture. It is the burden of John. Against the assumptions of many that Jesus was just another man, Jesus, John tells us that Jesus was fully God fully man and full of glory. And that will be our outline this evening, fully God, fully man, and full of glory. We begin at the beginning. John's gospel takes us back to prehistory, the time before time, the time before creation. And he tells us that the person who was Jesus existed at the beginning and was active at creation. John begins with a statement about the Word's pre-existence in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. We remember the chant of the Arians. There was a time when he was not, and John uh, denies this powerfully. The Word, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, uh, was before creation, in the beginning, before the beginning. He enjoys all the rights, power, authority, nature of God. He is 100% God without any diminution, subordination, or defect. Being God and with God, as both these verses echo, refers to the second person's unique person and relationship with the Father. We speak of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three persons of the Godhead, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Three persons in one nature, so that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, nor is the Father, nor the Son, the Spirit. We speak of their relationships as begotten and preceding, or neither. And here John is uh, echoing a Trinitarian theology. But John does not content himself with merely relating the pre-existence of the Son. He echoes uh, the reality of the Son being present at creation. Look at verses 3 and 4. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was light, the life, and the life was the light of men. If you thought that you could take in the beginning was the Word as, in verse 1 as, uh, as a kind of attachment to Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and in the beginning was the Word, uh, as reference to the Word being a part of that initial creation. Verses 3 and 4 completely make that an impossibility. Because if the Word created, then the Word must be before the beginning echoed here in Genesis 1. As God spoke and the world was formed, so John sees the Word as the very active agent in the creation of the world. Here, more than some Arian view of the creation of the Son, Zarianism asserted that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was the creation of, God, of the Father. This is disproved by John. The Son is not merely the word spoken by, but by God, but God himself. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Later on, 
The Bible will tell us that all things were made for him and by him. The next expression asserts something that appears in John Jesus' own words later. For as the son, Father hath life in himself, so he hath given son, the Son to have life in himself. In John 5, 26, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. These words cannot be understood as some type of subordinationism, as if the, fa- the Son is dependent upon the Father. Rather, within the Trinity, the Father is the one who has ordained the Son to hold authority over human life, to be the one who is able to give life to humankind, to his people. Going further, as life comes from the Son, so the light of the Son is that which illuminates men. This was the true light. He was not, we read in verse 8, he was not that light, that is, John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus is the one that eliminates uh, people to the reality of life. There's something innate in human life that reveals the reality of God further, the reality of the Son, and that man knows the truth. That there is a God, that Jesus is God, and that he came to save. The efficacy of the atonement, the purpose of the incarnation, the glory of Christmas, rests on the one fact that the baby born in Bethlehem was not a mere man. He was not another savior. He was and is God. He is the God who created heaven and earth, for John uh, forces us to, uh, to identify an equivalence between God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament, the God of creation and the God that the word that is being revealed in this gospel as Jesus. He's the God of heaven and earth. Jesus is the same God who was revealed in the burning bush on the fire on top of Mount Sinai, in the darkness that pervaded the tabernacle and the temple, and the one that that brought the plagues upon Egypt, the one that topples idols, the hand that brings down kings and kingdoms. There are many who want to make a distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament being a God of wrath, with a God of the New Testament being a God of mercy, Jehovah different from Jesus, and John will have none of it. Jesus is God to whom life and death, justice and judgment belong. And all this all people know. Not only in this light that enlightens every man that comes into the world, but in Romans chapter 1 we read of this truth. All this, this season, As Christmas is proclaimed throughout all the world, people remember. And all this, as Romans teaches us, they suppress in unrighteousness, refusing to admit the truth of what they so readily understand. So that it is not a memory acknowledged, but one that often appears in a dull unease and angst. Why do you think so many people have a problem during Christmas time? There's a part of the psychological response of the fact that people who we normally associate with and have around us during the holidays may not be with us and a sadness that comes from that. But I put it to you that there is probably also within the unbelieving heart this royal angst that there is something amiss in their souls when the world is celebrating Christmas. There is a understanding, there is this grim reminder that is 
working against their suppression of the truth. For Christians, we understand we ought to remember the unity of Scripture and the abiding strictures of the law. One of the frustrating aspects of popular Christian conceptions about the Incarnation is the division between law and love. We think of the Incarnation as the beginning of the New Testament, the the way that Jesus comes to preach love to everyone. And some pit Jesus' law of love against the Ten Commandments as if they were somehow in uh, conflict with one another, but they fail to recognize that when Jesus gives his law of love, love, your, love God and love your neighbor, he is merely summarizing the totality of the law. And not just the law of the Ten Commandments, but the entire law of God and all of the Old Testament. What, what Jesus is saying is, if you want to know how to love God and to love your neighbor, then all of the law of God must be your delight. We are to love and to obey the entire law of God. We of all people who understand that Jesus is God, Jesus is Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, who really grasped the unity of his divinity and humanity ought to be those who have a high view of the law that he came to fulfill and not to put aside. Because Jesus is fully God. And secondly, I want us to see that he is fully man. John does not merely confess the true divinity of Jesus, but also his humanity. The humanity of Jesus is not is, is of Jesus for the original audience was not a largely disputed fact, and thus not one contemplated in the other gospels. Uh, there the virgin birth takes precedence. Hebrews focuses on the importance of the true humanity as it appears, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tipped like as we are yet without sin, in Hebrews 4.15. John also notes the true humanity of Jesus as a point of prophetic fulfillment as the Son became us to tabernacle among us. John continues with this theme of light and the rejection of light by the world and the reception of that light by those God calls to himself who are born not of flesh nor of blood, but, nor of the will of man, but of God. But then John turns back to the concept of the word from the concept of light. Here in verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John is writing possibly in a time of what we think of as incipient Gnosticism, the view that uh, the fall of man is uh, an incarnational reality, that when we were all pure spirits, everything was all hunky-dory, but when we put on flesh, when we became uh, natural and physical, things went wrong. And the goal of life is to ascend back into that true spiritual reality, to become one with the Logos, as they say again. And here John has none of their attitude or idea at all when he says, and the Word became flesh. The Logos is not the idealized realm of the Spirit. Instead, the greatest act of our salvation was the Logos becoming flesh. This promise was the promise of Emmanuel in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. 
The promise echoed in Matthew 1.23. This truth is reflected in the Nicene Creed when we recite that Jesus was made man. Throughout the early ages of the church, various heresies arose denying the full humanity of Jesus. And we can understand the temptation uh, to either diminish the humanity or to diminish the divinity because our minds don't like the unreconciled. Our minds don't like when the pieces don't fit. I was listening to, to a, a, a book and it posited the fact that have you ever been on a high building and uh, there's and you're looking over the edge and there's a part of your brain, and you don't know where it comes from, that says jump. And that really worries you, right? Because you don't want to think you're suicidal. Well, some psychologists posit that you do not like the unreconciled. And even if it hurts you, you'd rather have the tension of the unreconciled relieve than having to deal with uh, this unreconciled uh, tension within your mind. There's something about us that... Uh, that doesn't like the unreconciled and uh, the ideas like the Trinity and the true humanity and divinity, that, that God is 100% man, that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, challenges us in this psychological way. It doesn't fit. It doesn't, we don't understand. Our perception of reality doesn't fit what is going on in Christ. And the truth is that we have to accept that reality because it's the very nature of God, and why should our minds be able to penetrate the true nature of divinity? As Luther said, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. How can our finite minds truly grasp what is going on in the infinite? And God is lisping to our understanding when he gives us uh, as much as we un need to understand, that we need to understand that God is, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man in order for him to be the perfect God-man sacrifice for us. So we cannot deal, we cannot try to reconcile by our puny human logic the truth of the hu true humanity and true divinity of Christ. The Nicene Creed can also often be accused of having antiquated language, but that language was chosen for a purpose. Has you ever wondered why in the Nicene Creed we say, for us men and for our salvation? And you might, who are not of the male gender, might say, well, am I excluded from that? In no way. But I would suggest, put it to you that the Nicene Creed puts it that way because later on he's, it will use that word very pointedly. Who for us men and for our salvation became man. It is for us humans that Jesus, that God, became man. You see that in verse 14, the Word was made flesh, and secondly, that it dwelt among us. Jesus dwelt among us. The Word here is the verbal form of the Word of the noun tent. It brings to mind the tabernacle, and for good reason. To dwell among men, to dwell among his people, is a repeated emphasis in the Old Testament. We've been going through in Sunday mornings uh, the book of Exodus and the building of the tabernacle, and there's something here in John 1.14 that calls us to go back and think about, to reevaluate everything we, uh, we might have understood about the temple and the tabernacle and to see Christ revealed in it all. 
And yet that is not the only place where the Lord meets with his people. We see it in the Garden of Eden. We see it in Genesis 15. We see it in Jacob's Ladder. We see it at Sinai. We see it at the tabernacle and the temple. We cannot help but remember the story in Exodus 33. We haven't gotten there, spoiler alert, for our studies, where Moses beseeches the Lord that the tabernacle return to the middle of the camp after the, in the aftermath of the golden calf. The Lord tells Moses to move the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, as the tabernacle still hasn't been constructed yet, out of the center of the camp, outside the camp, to say that God's presence is not within the midst of Israel. And everyone, well, they, they, they don't like it. You're never told that explicitly, but everyone stands at their tent and watches Moses leave to go talk to God. Can you imagine a scene more redolent of sorrow and pathos than everyone just standing there at the front of their tent, realizing what they have done, realizing what that tent far off means according, uh, for, what, for their own sin, and watching as Moses has to leave them in order to talk to God. And Moses beseeches the Lord that he would return the tabernacle back to the middle of the camp, that the Lord would tabernacle with his people again. And here the word became flesh and he tabernacles among his people. But this tabernacle, this word becoming flesh is more than a physical tent. It is the Lord Jesus, as the God of the Old Testament, as Jehovah, Yahweh, as human, not represented in skins of gold, not, not represented in skins and gold and wood and cloth and linens. It is a presence that speaks and listens and that hungers and thirsts, that bleeds and dies. A presence that puts into active historical reality all that that static inanimate building promised. It was not merely the presence of God that a tent represented, but as we have seen in the tabernacle, it is the representation that the tabernacle shows what is necessary for man to dwell with God, for God to dwell with man, all of the things that that represents. Here, Jesus comes and fulfills it all. This is where we truly feel the advantage of an Anselm, that God became man, that all the sacrifices pointed to the one sacrifice that was necessary. They only pointed, for they could not atone, for there must be a sacrifice of infinite worth to take the sins of all his people. Animal death could never match what justice demanded in our own death. And no human sacrifice alone could atone, for no other ordinary man would be able to pay the debt for many people's sins. No, only the God-man could make the atonement we needed to be reconciled to God, to reconcile all his people to God. That baby born in Bethlehem is still a mystery that we marvel at, that, he, that, that baby, that, that infant in that manger is 100% man and 100% God, and we must continue to marvel at that. Not merely at the incomprehensibility of the God-man, but that God would do such an act of humiliation for us, that he would come and dwell with us. All the Old Testament images point to the incarnate Christ, that he was the object of God's dwelling with man, Emmanuel. 
The tabernacle and all of its accessories pointed to Jesus. The sacrificial system pointed to him. Every prophet, priest, and king prefigured him. For he was the only way that God could dwell with man. He was the only sacrifice that could ever atone for sin. He was the true revealer of God and his word. He was the true prophet, according to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. He was the only priest that could med- mediate between God and reconcile and bring man to God, as the author of Hebrews again uh, goes on and on about. And he is the ultimate king. All mankind's hope focuses on Jesus, that, w- that God became man and dwelt with us. And yet, as he is fully God and fully man, in that humiliation there is glory. The glory of God appears in surprising ways. And John reminds us that in Jesus God's glory was revealed and that in Jesus God was seen. John continues to speak of the person of Christ and the manner in which God reveals himself to man in verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The note of glory so near to the Son taking, on, taking humanity upon himself signals something of supreme importance. For many who consider the Incarnation suspect that the Son put off his glory when he became man. And John seems to see something of the reverse, that the glory of God is revealed in the Incarnation. Think about what Isaiah 53 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. It seems that this is uh, a story of a person who has very little glory about it. And yet that person is the revelation of God's glory. For God's greatness in his glory is shown in how far he chooses to stoop to do the work of deliverance. And that he does this proves his glory. Notice the content of the glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's face the truth first, the truth of our sin, the truth of judgment, the truth of condemnation and death, the truth of a justice we can never escape, a truth that God does not overlook sin and justice and judgment, but a truth that also reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came, that he was the sinless sacrifice, that he was God made man, and therein lies the grace that God had acted to be, the, be both just and the justifier of his people, the ultimate judge, the doer of right, but also the doer of right who is able to bring his people who are sinners into a relationship with him to deal judicially with their sins and yet be just, to forgive him and to judge another. And he judged sin in Jesus that he might forgive us in him. God took upon himself his own justice that that justice might not fall upon his people. This is God's glory, even the salvation of his people from their sin. But the work of Jesus in our salvation was only a part of that glory. Look at verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. 
The glory that is seen is the glory of the God of the Old Testament. No man hath seen God at any time. This reminds us of Exodus 33 and 34, where in that same situation where the tabernacle is moved outside the camp and Moses is beseeching God to bring the the tent of meeting back into the center of the camp, and God uh, agrees to do that. Moses dares one more request. He says to God, if I have found favor in your sight, let me see your glory. God tells him that no man can see his full glory and live. And that is what John is echoing here in John 1.18. No man hath seen God at any time. And yet, now, that status quo no longer exists. Now, John is saying, no man has seen God at any time. Even Moses did not see the full revelation of glory. But that revelation now has been made manifest in Jesus. For those who saw Jesus saw the Father. Those who saw Jesus saw God, as John 14.9 vividly illustrates. Philip says to Jesus, So show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. It's enough for, uh, you know, he's getting uh, so heady in all the promises that Jesus is making, and Philip's saying, all right, let's, let's cut through all of this uh, to the essential to the point. Just show us the Father, and we'll be okay. And Jesus turns to Philip and says, Have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? John looks at Philip and, and says this to him, and John remembers it. Remembers it so far that what, he, what Jesus said in the upper room on that night is then put into the very beginning of his book. The very beginning of his book, he says, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. This one, Jesus, revealed God to us. This is the truth that confronts you, my friend, that Jesus came and manifested God in all of his aspects, even the ones that make us uncomfortable, like his justice. For we all ought to recognize that we are sinners justly deserving death and eternal punishment in hell. The truth is that we can do nothing to reconcile ourselves to God. You are his enemy by birth and by choice. But not only is there truth, but there is grace that he came to perform. For what we could never do, God did for you in Jesus. He died the death that we deserve. He took our hell that we should have suffered. And all that is required for you to participate in that grace is to believe the message of salvation, to receive Jesus and all that he did. And this is the glory of God, even your salvation. Do you believe what Jesus did? He did for you. I encourage you to turn from your sin and to follow after Jesus. Where is the glory in a baby born in a stable and laid in a manger? We forget the humbleness of the story when our eyes are blinded by sentiment. 
We forget the greatness of this story is not in sentiment, but in the truth, the truth of God dwelling with his people. A truth that that stable was not the greatest container, the greatest dwelling place that was there that night that Jesus was born. For the greatest dwelling place was Jesus himself, who was dwelling with his people. Is the truth of God saving those who were unable and unwilling. That baby so helpless so long ago was reflective of our helpless estate, for that baby had more potential uh, to save than any other human being, for he did save. The truth of God showing himself to us. Yes, there is sentiment in this to be had in this story of plenty. There's something evocative of stars and angels and shepherds and babies and birth. But the true miracle of the story comes from the truth of who that baby is. And yet, have you noticed how Jesus often fades from popular Christianity, especially in the public square? Christians often find themselves more comfortable about talking about God than talking about Jesus. Perhaps it is because we recognize that the world is more comfortable with us confessing a kind of amorphic idea of God. The people are more comfortable with an unknown God whom they may or may not have a relationship with, with, with but really doesn't make all that many demands upon them. Perhaps they recognize that when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about a human and divine person who has demands upon them who presses upon them their need for salvation, their need for faith. And we as believers cannot but profess and hold, hold steadfast the truth about Jesus, that he is God and man. We follow the example of Paul, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. This Christmas just by the very act of celebrating it and professing it before the world, we are preaching Jesus both to ourselves and to the world. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we bow before you recognizing that we often do not like the tension of the Incarnation. And our sinful minds are prone to diminish either the humanity or the divinity of Christ to diminish the, his being fully God or fully man. For in doing so, we forget that in that uniqueness, we see the glory of your saving acts for us. Help us to be those who proclaim Jesus boldly that you may be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.